0: All right, I think we'll go ahead and get started. Welcome, everybody, to uh, family gathering number three, our third and and final family gathering for this series. Um, Welcome to those of you who are watching online. Glad you could join us that way. Um, I'm going to jump in real quickly here because um, we have a lot to cover um, and not so much time to cover it. Um, This week, this session, I'm going to finish walking us through 1 Timothy chapter 2. And then Craig will come and summarize kind of what we've talked about in these meetings, talk about next steps, and then we'll have a 15-minute question and answer session where all the elders will be available up here on the platform, um, some time for you to ask uh, questions. If you can't stay for the Q&A or you don't want to stay for the Q&A, that's perfectly fine. You can slip out when we get to that time. Not a problem at all. Let me pray for us as we start, and then we'll jump in. Our God and Father, we thank you that we can call upon you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the access you've given us as your children, and we pray tonight that you would give us clarity, that you would give us insight and understanding into your word, that you would give us wisdom, and and most of all, that you would give us love for each other and unity in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, well... Last time, we began talking about three key passages, um, 1 Corinthians 11, another section from 1 Corinthians 14, and then we started to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11-15, through 15, and, and we'll continue looking at that passage today. Um, these three passages, why are we looking at these passages? These three passages are often at the center of the, the debate around what, women, um, what women's participation should be or should not be in, in the worship service. Um, why are they so disputed? Well, there's, there's a lot of reasons. Let me give you two. One is um, cultural distance. We are in 21st century Southern California, which is a much different world than first, the 1st first century Greco-Roman Empire, and that um, makes some of these things hard to understand. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, this is true of all of the Bible. It's not a bad thing. These are ancient texts. We should expect to encounter things that are unfamiliar, difficult to understand, require us to... Um, put our thinking caps on. That's not a problem. Um, second reason is not just cultural distance, but um, with these passages in particular, exegetical and interpretive challenges. Um, these three passages, and they're not the only ones in the Bible, but these three passages that we've been looking at, they're very tricky. Uh, I don't mean deceptive. I mean, they're hard to interpret. First um, Timothy 2, 11 through 15, the one we're going to be looking at tonight, that passage alone, uh, the elders, as we've studied it, have identified at least 26 different exegetical and interpretive decisions that have to be made. And faithful Bible scholars land, in d- they come to different conclusions on a lot of these questions. And so this isn't just a run-of-the-mill passage, it's a challenging um, passage. And the divide, you know, I said people come to different conclusions, It's not just a divide between complementarians and egalitarians. Complementarians don't all agree amongst themselves about how best to understand this passage. Egalitarians don't all agree among themselves how best to um, understand this passage. There is no one complementarian interpretation of this passage. There's no one egalitarian interpretation of this passage. And because of the difficulty of understanding this passage, um, each of us should strive to cultivate epistemic humility. Now, maybe I just betrayed my lack of epistemic humility by using the word epistemic. Um, what I'm saying is intellectual humility. Um, we want to be humble interpreters of God's word. And that means we need to recognize um, several things about ourselves. N- number one, we need to recognize the limitations of our knowledge. Um, both personally as as individuals and even corporately as churches and denominations and church traditions, we need to recognize the limits of our skills as Bible readers and interpreters. We need to be aware of the assumptions and biases we bring to the text, um, both personal biases and and corporate biases. You know, um, the the church tradition we've grown up in, the those kinds of things. Um, No one in this room perfectly understands this passage. And I include myself and my fellow elders in that that assessment. No one understands it perfectly. Paul understood what he wrote. Timothy understood what he read. um, But none of us have it all figured out. And I know that's an uncomfortable idea. Um, We value certainty. It it gives us a sense of comfort, right? And um, so it's helpful for us to recognize that we can We can know some things about this passage, so I just said we need to be humble, recognize our limitations, but a balancing perspective, we can know some things about this passage. we can make reasonable reasonable conclusions about what this passage teaches. We might not understand it all, but we can work at interpreting it, we can read it in conversation with the broader church, and we can come to some some plausible conclusions about what this passage is teaching, and along these lines, um, I came across. Something D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, said about this. And he said, It's an act of both realism and humility to recognize that no individual and no single community has all the truth about any individual biblical passage or theme. And then he goes on to say, Listening to one another is bound to result in richer interpretations than would otherwise be the case. And sometimes it issues in straightforward correction. Now, he was just talking broadly about the task of interpreting the Bible, but he points out that humility is an essential. An open mind is an essential. Um, A willingness to learn from other perspectives is essential for us to become um, skilled Bible readers and Bible interpreters. So not all of us are going to agree on the particulars of this passage not all not all of us will agree on how best to apply the the message of this passage in the life of our church and and that's okay, um, but we can continue loving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We can continue cultivating unity as as a church around the essentials of the faith. So a little um kind of intro and then a reminder about our focus in these sessions, and again tonight. Um, these passages are big. There's a lot that could be said, but our focus is somewhat limited. What do these passages teach us? What does First Timothy 2 teach us about women's participation in the worship service? So that's kind of the the filter, that's the lens we're bringing to this um, study tonight. So let's start looking at First Timothy 2, 11 through 15. And I'm, like I did last time, I'm going to give you the key takeaway up front, since it's easy to get lost in the details. Um, Key takeaway in two parts. Part one, women should study the Bible and theology alongside their brothers in Christ. Doing so will ensure they are well equipped to exercise their valuable gifts and ministries for the good of the church and the advance of the gospel. That's part one. Part two of the key takeaway. But God does not call women to fill the office of elder or to perform the ministry functions reserved the functions reserved for the elders of the church. So that key takeaway is based on uh, two key verses in the larger passage. Um, 1 Timothy 2:11 and 12, which say, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So before we get into details, um, I, I've said this in our, in our Discipleship Hour class on um, Teach Us Your Word. Bible study context is so important. Let's talk for a moment about context. Um, this letter, 1 Timothy, is written by the Apostle Paul to his younger ministry partner, Timothy, who is in Ephesus. And, and this is how Paul begins the letter, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Um, I left you there so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any other doctrine or any different doctrine, false doctrine. Timothy's in Ephesus as Paul's representative to the church. Paul had planted the church several years before. It's been in existence for a while. Um, but over time, certain false um, teachings had taken root in the church there in Ephesus. And so, Paul, who left Timothy there to deal with the um, false teachers, false teaching, is encouraging Timothy, who, from what we can tell in the letter, sounds like maybe he's getting a little discouraged and wants to move on. He tells Timothy, Stay put, don't leave. And squash the unorthodox teachings that some people were promoting so paul 's overarching concern in this letter is is to suppress harmful false doctrine and to promote sound doctrine and practice in the church and so chapter one, he gives Timothy his, his marching orders to deal with the false teachers and their destructive teachings and Then we come to chapter two, and Paul starts giving Timothy instructions about correcting various problems in the church. Um, And in particular, problems that were occurring when the church came together as the church to worship. And it's very likely that the false teachers, the false teaching and all that was causing disorder and division in the church. And so we come to chapter 2, and um, he addresses three problems. Paul addresses three problems. The first, um, I'm skipping the first section of the chapter, but in in 8 through 15, the first problem he deals with is angry men which makes me think of a movie, 12 Angry Men. Has anybody ever seen that, about a jury? It's wonderful. Um, Angry men, verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, and then notice this last phrase, very important, without anger or quarreling. So the church gathers, and when it comes time to pray, some of the men are spending that time arguing. Arguing maybe with each other, um, perhaps about the false doctrine, maybe with some of the women in the church. We don't know the specifics, but they're, they're arguing, they're angry, they're argumentative. And Paul tells Timothy to teach these angry men that they need to set aside their anger and pray with the proper attitude and disposition. So the point here is not that only men should pray. It's that the men who are praying should do it with the proper attitude. So he's addressing a particular problem. Paul's not saying women can't pray. We saw in chapter uh, 1 Corinthians 11, women pray and prophesy in the church. Paul's correcting a particular problem with some of these men in the church. He goes on to address another group, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, um, wealthy women. Now, the problem isn't that there are wealthy women in the church. It's what the wealthy women are doing with their wealth, Um, He says likewise, just like he wants the men to pray with proper attitude, likewise also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. And then this is important, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. What Paul's saying here is not that women can't um, look nice when they come to church. That, Paul's not a, you know, the fashion police in that sense. What he's, pointed, what he's saying is wealthy women who, would be, who could show their wealth by fancy clothes and fancy hairstyles, braided hairstyles. You can find some art from the time that shows some of these hairstyles. He's saying they should not come to church and gather for worship and flaunt their wealth. Um, In other words, um, you know, some of them were using their apparel, their hairstyles to draw attention to themselves and to highlight their social status. I'm a person of means. I'm a person that's higher up the the social ladder than some of you others. Some of them perhaps had skewed priorities, focusing on external appearances rather than um, godliness and doing good works. And so Paul is instructing Timothy to basically put an end to the fashion show. He's saying, look, it's, it's fine to look nice, but worship is not a fashion show. It's not a time to flaunt your wealth. It's not a time to, um, to show off your status. They should dress respectably and modestly. Now, modesty here is not primarily about things like skirt length or how much skin is showing. We've kind of modified the way that word is understood. Modesty here, well, I should say, obviously Paul would not approve of anyone in the church, male or female, dressing in sexually suggestive ways. Okay, But the point here about modesty is that modest apparel is apparel that does not flaunt one's wealth and status. Modest apparel is about not shaming the poor members of the congregation. Many many of the people in the congregation would have been the lower classes, slaves, freed people, others who were not people of means. Modest apparel doesn't shame the poor members of the congregation um, who can't afford such extravagant clothing. So that's that's Paul's concern here um, with these women. And then he goes on to address a third um, group, verses 11 to 15. And the focus here seems to be women who have been deceived by the false teachers. So um, if you read through the whole letter, um, you'll see many references to the false teachers targeting uh, women in particular. Not that they only targeted women, but they seem to have preyed on um, women in general and maybe younger widows in particular. Um, It was not it would have been very common for there to be many young widows um, at that time. So that's Paul's addressing some problems, and then that brings us to our key verses. Um, again, uh, let's just take them one at a time. Verse 11. What stands out to us when we read this today is that, um, that, that the second half of the verse, right? Quietly with all submissiveness. We read that and we think, wow, that sure sounds like a sexist comment, Paul doesn't like women. You know, it sounds like he's saying women uh, are to be seen but not heard in church. Um, That's not Paul's point, and and we'll see why in a moment. What we shouldn't skip over too quickly is the first part of the verse. Let a woman learn. And so Paul's giving directions to Timothy about how to to help this church. Let a woman learn. That's a countercultural proposal. Um, Paul is saying the women of the church should be given all opportunity to be learners. The Christian women must be given the opportunity to pursue their calling as disciples, just like the Christian men in the congregation. A a disciple is a learner. Um, And the context here is, is learning Christian doctrine, Christian teaching in the gathered church. And Paul is saying this should be their priority, growing in in their understanding of sound doctrine rather than their appearance and flaunting their wealth and and so forth. And it should be Timothy's priority as he works with this church to ensure that the church gatherings are conducive to learning. Um, Just a a quick note, women in that world did not have the same educational opportunities as the men in general. Some women did have advanced education, but In general, the women were not afforded the kinds of opportunities to be educated that the men were. Um, One rabbi around that time said it would be better for the words of Torah to be burned than that they should be entrusted to a woman. Now, uh, Jewish Jewish women did learn Torah, but he's making a point that it's kind of a a waste to to spend it on them. Um, The Greeks and Romans believed that women were inferior in many different ways, including intellectually and that it was a waste of time to educate them. It wasn't a priority. Paul thinks much differently. Paul thinks um, that it is vitally important for Christian women to be full-fledged learners. And just like Mary, sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from him as teacher and pupil. So let a woman learn. We shouldn't pass over that too quickly. But Paul moves on to talk about um, what promotes learning. So the the priority is learning. Well, how can learning happen? And he talks about the proper attitude and dispositions that that contribute to learning. Um, He highlights two of them. Um, The first, quietness. It says, let a woman learn quietly. Now, quietly, like we saw with some of the other passages we looked at, does not mean absolute silence. Um, This is about attitude and disposition. Here it has the sense of, Attentive silence for the sake of listening to the teacher. Um, he uses a related term, the adjectival form of this term, in earlier in verse 2, when he talks about leading a quiet life. Talking to all Christians, the priority of leading a quiet life. He doesn't mean a life in which you take a vow of silence and never speak. He's talking about living a peaceful life, a life where you're not causing disruption and chaos and rebelling against the authorities and so forth. And so the point here is that the women who need to prioritize learning need to adopt an attentive demeanor. This is that's the posture of a student. Just like you all are sitting quietly listening right now because if we were all talking at the same time it would be quite difficult to learn anything, right? So and so Paul says let them learn quietly. He repeats it again at the end of verse 12. But the second quality, second Attitude, disposition that promotes a learning environment is submissiveness. Now, when he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, he's not referring to submitting to a husband, submitting to a father, or submitting to all men in general. That's not the the focus here. The the phrase, with all submissiveness, modifies the verb learn. How are they to learn? That's the priority. How are they to learn? With all submissiveness. In other words, a student of God's Word should learn with a posture of submission to God's Word, a posture of submission to the truth being taught. And you could say in a limited way by extension to the teacher of God's Word who's who's teaching um, God's truth. So the, the issue here is how are the women going to learn? They're going to adopt a quiet, calm, attentive demeanor, and they're going to prioritize submitting to the truth of God's word, maybe because some of them were all caught up in the false teaching and and disputing what was being taught. Um, We'll see some of that later. Um, So what is the point of verse 11? It's not to silence women in the worship service. We've already seen from 1 Corinthians that women were vocal participants in the church's worship gatherings. That was the norm in the apostolic churches. Paul here is talking about the priority of learning and the manner. Of learning, Quietness and submissiveness are the dispositions of a student. And, and really, both men and women ought to cultivate these attitudes. This isn't specific. You know, only women need to adopt this. But, but Paul here is addressing particularly a problem with the women in this church in Ephesus. That's why he, he addresses them. So, in a situation where false teaching is pervasive, Paul wants Timothy to create an environment where sound doctrine is taught and sound doctrine is learned, and where the women being preyed on by false teachers can get grounded in the truth, so he he lays out a priority, and then he moves on to a prohibition in verse twelve and um, it 's a two part prohibition in verse twelve we've we 've seen it um, two things: I, I do not permit a woman to teach, and the second is to exercise authority over a man now. Before we look at specifically what does this mean, let's talk about two things it doesn't mean. So two things that Paul does not forbid. And the first is this. Paul does not forbid all teaching by women. Um, Let me just give you some examples from elsewhere in Scripture to show this. Um, In Scripture, we see women teaching in all kinds of ways. Just a few here. Uh, Women teach other women and children. Paul gives instruction about this in Titus and 2 Timothy um, Timothy himself learned God's word from his grandmother and his mother. Um, in Women teach the church, and what I mean here is Colossians 3.16, where Paul says to the whole church, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Corporate singing has a, a teaching aspect. We're speaking to we're praising God, but we're also, in a sense, speaking to each other, teaching and admonishing one another. That's something that Christian men and women both do. Um, we see women teaching men in the Bible. Acts 18, um, Priscilla and her husband Aquila take Apollos aside. Apollos, a man learned in the scriptures, but doesn't have all the information yet about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They take him aside privately, and they instruct him in the Christian faith, in the way Luke um, presents this story and words this story, it se- he seems to be portraying Priscilla, the first named, as the, taking the lead in instructing Apollos. So uh, just a few examples, but Paul is not saying a- absolutely women can never teach in any context or in, in any way whatsoever. So he's not forbidding all teaching by women. Um, nor is he forbidding all exercise of authority by women. Um, again, just um, looking at a few different, um, uh, few different places in Scripture where we see women exercising authority properly, rightly, and in a way that glorifies God. Um, page one of our Bibles. Page one. Women are given exercise authority over the world as God's vice regents. Genesis one twenty six through twenty eight. Um, God commissions both Adam and Eve to function as his royal image bearers, which involves exercising authority over the world, exercising dominion over the world. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, a wife has authority over her husband's body. Um, I will keep this rated G, but um, there in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul tells husbands and wives that neither one of them has unilateral authority over the other in the most intimate aspect of the marriage relationship. He he promotes and recommends and commands mutuality. The, The wife has authority over her husband's body. The husband has authority over the wife's body, which is another way to say neither one is to act as the dictator over the other. And so... Regarding wives as equals, for Paul to say this, was radical in his day. To tell these, these men that you need to regard your wife as an equal and you don't have despotic you know, authority over her body. Um, that, that, that was a radical statement. Um, Gifts of leadership, Romans chapter 12, verse 8, um, where we read about the Holy Spirit distributing gifts to men and women in the church. And that includes the ability to lead various ministries and activities in the life of the church. And an important distinction we need to recognize. We need to recognize the distinction between a leadership office. So for example, the office of elder and The the ability, the gifting of leading, the the ability to lead tasks and ministries. We need both women and men to lead ministries, to perform tasks in the church, in the home, in the world. Um, The the world would be a lesser place, a dysfunctional place if if they didn't. Um, We see women leading in all kinds of ways. In in just the New Testament, for example, um, Phoebe, Romans chapter 16, traveling to Rome as a representative of her local church back near Corinth, traveling to Rome, most likely bringing the letter um, to the Romans. Paul gives it to her. She takes it to Rome as an official representative of her church. Um, Paul commends all kinds of female co-workers in the gospel, in uh, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, and Junia in Rome. Um, Priscilla, whom I've mentioned, Iodia and Syntyche in Philippi, um, Chloe in Corinth. He he talks about women such as Nympha and Lydia who hosted churches in their home, which wasn't just you know putting a few snacks out on the on the table. It was a much bigger deal. Um, we see uh, Paul commanding women to exercise authority in the household. First Timothy 5:14. He tells wives, he tells women to manage their households. Now we tend to read that as Paul saying, be a housewife. But the term there that he uses, manage your household, it has the sense of rule direct oversee. And so don't picture the modern uh, nuclear family. First century households were much different. They were more like small businesses. And so... This would mean she was to exercise authority over extended family members who were a part of the household, including sometimes adult sons, sometimes daughter, adult daughters. That included exercising authority over household slaves, servants, and employees, some of whom were Christian men in the same church. Um, And so the the household matriarch exercised authority over them. Lydia, most likely, she was a wealthy business owner, most likely had household slaves and servants. And when the church gathered in the home, she directed those servants, you know, get the meal ready, serve everyone else. Some of those servants might have been members of the church. Um, So households, back then, much different. Women are told to exercise some authority in the household. Um, And then there's just the general office, the the authority granted to every believer. And I'm not going to spend lots of time on this, but the authority to approach God apart from an earthly mediator, the, the authority to represent Christ in the world, the authority to evangelize, to encourage, counsel, exhort, comfort, admonish, and rebuke fellow church members, the authority to... Choose church leaders, Acts chapter 6. We see men and women members of the church doing that. The authority to confront sinning church members, Matthew chapter 18 and elsewhere. The authority to dismiss unrepentant church members. What I mean is, as a part of the church, excommunicating unrepentant church members, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So, just some examples to show that this prohibition in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, is not a comprehensive ban on women teaching or leading in various ways. So those are two things Paul does not forbid. Not forbidding all teaching, not forbidding all exercise of authority. What does he forbid? It's clear in in verse 12 that he, he prohibits the women in Ephesus from doing something, Um, What exactly that is and why exactly he says that they should not do this is highly contested, Um, and it's difficult to be absolutely certain. But let me give you two plausible explanations. So I I made up these names, but uh, explanation number one would be it's a limited um, situation-specific prohibition. And so on this reading of the passage... um, Paul is dealing with a specific problem in the church in Ephesus. So again, church had existed for several years, um, but it sounds like here in verse 12 that Paul is giving Timothy some new information. Um, I, you know, I'm not permitting a woman to teach or exercise authority. sounds like he's addressing the present situation, namely the problem of false teaching. As I mentioned, there's evidence in the letter that the false teachers were targeting women in particular, um, and it appears that the women were helping to spread this false teaching um, in the church, that they were causing disruption and division in the church, that they were challenging Timothy's authority as a leader there, that they were challenging the authority of the existing elders and perhaps their teaching, that they were promoting error when the church gathers, um, So, which may um, explain some of the reason Paul says, I don't permit them to teach, Um, The Greek word translated exercise authority um, is a rare word. Um, It's not the normal term for exercising authority. This is the only time it's used in the New Testament, is rarely used outside of the New Testament um, before the first century. It has a range of meanings, and it's unlikely that it has a positive connotation in this context. Um, That may be why Paul chose to use this unusual word rather than using words that are used elsewhere in the New Testament for exercising authority. And so the term likely is not referring to a legitimate exercise of authority, but maybe um, a, a negative sense. And the, the King James Version and other old, older translations give a, a negative uh, sense to this uh, term. It, it, prob- it maybe has the sense of, con- um, I'm not permitting a woman to act in a controlling and domineering manner or seizing authority. Um, and so Paul, on this reading, wants Timothy to put a stop to this unchrist-like behavior that's going on in the church, promoting error, seeking to be domineering, argumentative, um, disrespectful toward Timothy and the leaders of the church. Um, Paul tells Timothy, you know, put a stop to this. I don't permit this to be happening. And instead, as we saw in verse 11, the, the women should prioritize they should adopt the posture of a calm, quiet learner rather than assuming the role of instructor. Um, since, in particular, because they were in error. So that's that's one plausible um, understanding. And on that reading, um, Paul goes on in verses 13 and 15 to underscore the the urgent importance of these women learning sound doctrine. So um, 13 through 15 are those verses we read and go, what on earth is going on? Um, Paul points there in verses 13 to 15 to the the creation and fall narrative in Genesis 2 and 3. And in verse 13, um, he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And it's possible that he's simply narrating a sequence of events. Adam was created first, then Eve. Uh, Maybe he's even uh, correcting some popular myths that were there, going on there, or popular in Ephesus about women, uh, a woman being created before man. And then verse 14, he says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, he's not denying Adam's culpability in the matter. Uh, We saw in Romans 5, Paul lays the blame for what happened in the garden squarely on Adam's shoulders. Um... Genesis 3 indicates Adam was right there when when the serpent approached Eve and deceived her. Um, what Paul's doing, perhaps, is highlighting the danger of being deceived and the disastrous consequences that follow. I mean, if you could if you could pick the the ultimate example of why deception is so disastrous and has such negative consequences, I mean. Eve being deceived in the garden, right? I mean, all of human history after Adam and Eve's uh, sin has been altered. So Paul, on this reading, doesn't want the deceived women in Ephesus to follow in Eve's footsteps in in this regard. Um, So on this reading, it's it's a limited prohibition. Paul's dealing with a particular problem at a particular time. And the application today would be that the elders of the church must prevent women who are in error from promoting error. So that's one possible reading. Um, a second possible, second possible reading, um, equally plausible, is that this is a universal prohibition. In other words, um, the specific situation in Ephesus is a factor. The, the issue with false teaching and false teachers is a factor, but Paul gives a prohibition that applies to all churches at all times, whether. Women in the church are good and godly and not in error, or they're, they're caught up in error. Um, so he would be prohibiting women from performing the functions of the elders of the church. And so on this reading, um, teaching and exercising authority are both positive um, activities. It's not about teaching error. It's not about being domineering. Um, Teaching and exercising authority are the basic responsibilities of the elders of the church. And so, um, in the book of 1 Timothy, and and also Titus, um, teaching is is virtually a technical term for guarding and preserving apostolic doctrine. So, it's about protecting the truth, and then also transmitting apostolic doctrine through authoritative teaching and proclamation. And 1 Timothy underscores the elder's role as teachers of sound doctrine. So, for example, chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says that an elder, one of the qualifications is he must be able to teach. And then, chapter 5, verse 17, he says, You know, all elders must be able to teach, but some elders are set apart to concentrate on the work of teaching and preaching. And so, their authoritative teaching ministry protects the church from doctrinal error. The letter also underscores the elders' role as um, rulers or overseers in the church, people who exercise pastoral authority. In the church. So, elders exercise doctrinal and governmental oversight and authority over the church as under shepherds. And that includes things like pastoral care, protecting the church from false teachers, directing the affairs of the church, overseeing the church's worship services, and so forth. So, on this reading, Paul's prohibiting women from performing the duties of the elders, teaching and exercising authority. is shorthand for what elders do. And Paul's saying, I don't permit women to perform the functions of elders. And then he would go on in verses 13 to 15 to um, ground that that prohibition in the created order. So again, verse 13, Adam formed first, then Eve. Paul's pointing to the creation narrative in Genesis 2, where we, we read Adam was created first, God gave the command not to eat from the tree to Adam first. God entrusted Adam with primary responsibility for guarding and keeping the garden. God holds Adam responsible ultimately for the sin in the garden, as we talked about. And then verse 14, um, he talks about Eve's deception to highlight how the serpent subverted God's creation order, bypassing Adam. And the point being um, on this reading that the creation order provides the basis for male elders having a unique leadership role in the church. Um, That's why Paul says he doesn't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. He's talking about what elders do. And so, you know, each of those two explanations is plausible, and then almost an infinite number of combinations of those two explanations could even be possible. Um, it, It is difficult. To, to, with absolute certainty to say it's exactly this. Uh, I'll talk in a moment about what is clear to us. Let me offer a few clarifications real quick. Um, three quick clarifications, especially about verses 13 to 15. Um, however those prohibition, that prohibition should be interpreted, we need to keep the following in mind. Paul's not saying that, um, that men are superior to women because Adam was created first. Many of the church fathers taught this. Many people in the medieval church taught this. Many of the reformers taught this. They were wrong. Um, creation order, birth order, does not guarantee superior status. The animals and the plants were created before Adam. They don't have superior status. John the Baptist and millions of other people were born before Jesus. They don't, they're not superior to Jesus. John himself confesses that Jesus is the preeminent one. Um, Genesis 1 clearly teaches that both men and women were created in the image of God. Both men and women are called to exercise dominion over the world. Um, They have equal dignity and value than the rest of Scripture. Men and women are co-heirs together of the grace of life. Um, Brothers and sisters in the family of God, destined to rule over the new earth together. So in other words, there's no hierarchy of being when it comes to men and women. Um, Second thing to note, Paul's not saying that women are more easily deceived than men. Um, Paul uses Satan's deception of Eve to talk to the whole church in second, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. He says to the whole church, I fear that just as Satan, just, just as the serpent deceived Eve, that you've been deceived. And he's talking to men and women. And so, um, if Paul thought that women were more easily deceived than men, why does he instruct women to teach children? I mean, they're the most vulnerable of all to deception. Um, Why would Luke speak favorably of Priscilla instructing Apollos? Why would Paul commend so many uh, female co-workers in the the work of the gospel? Why does Proverbs portray uh, wisdom as a a woman? So Paul's not saying that women are more easily deceived uh, than men. And then the third thing is Paul's not saying that a woman's place is in the home. Um, verse 15, which I didn't talk about yet, the she will be saved through childbearing or by childbearing, is often used to say, see, a woman's proper place is in the home. Um, that doesn't take into account the fact that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says to single men and women, don't get married. It's better to be devoted to the Lord's work. So in Paul's mind, um, getting married and having children is not a woman's highest or only calling. It can be one, but it isn't the, necessarily the highest. Um, in 1 Timothy, Paul speaks about the goodness of, of marriage and childbearing, um, in particular in verse 15 and elsewhere, because the false teachers were encouraging women to to abandon marriage or to avoid marriage and, and possibly, by extension, avoiding having kids. Um Perhaps the false teachers painted that life as an unspiritual existence, that true spirituality was achieved by um, um, an, asc- an aesthetic, ascetic life, you know, not eating certain foods. He talks about chapter 4, um, giving up on marriage, remaining celibate, and so forth. And so in, ch- in chapter 2, verse 15, he provides some sort of assurance to the women who were... Um, deceived or had embraced error, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, I'm going to disappoint you. I'm not going to tell you what it means. Everyone who's tried to look at this verse um, has struggled with it. It sounds like salvation by childbearing, right? Um, Most of you have been here for our Roman series in the mornings. Um, If if women are saved by childbearing, then we throw out the book of Romans because the book of Romans says we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, you know, there's a, lot of, a number of interpretive options, I'm not going to go over them, but at the very least, Paul is saying that these women shouldn't believe the false teacher's lies about the goodness of, of marriage and family life. And in some way, he's encouraging them to trust God's protection and provision for them in, in birthing children, which back then many women died um, while giving birth. It was very common, so it would have been a, a particular um, fear. That many of those women would have had. Um, There's more that could be said about that, but this isn't a class about giving birth. Um, Okay, I know I covered a lot. What is clear to us as elders about this prohibition in 1 Timothy 2? Let me talk about that for a moment, Um, and then Craig will come. Um, What's clear to us is that the elders are responsible, the elders of the church, are responsible for overseeing and conducting the authoritative teaching ministry of the church in the weekly worship service. Um, And that's very clear to us. And we also are very clear about the need to be careful not to make these verses say more than they do. That's part of the reason I, I said, what is Paul not forbidding here? He's not forbidding all teaching in every situation by women, not forbidding all exercise of authority. By women, because what 's clear to us is that this prohibition is about um, the elders overseeing and conducting the authoritative teaching ministry of the church and um, in particular in the in the weekly worship service, so in our understanding, this prohibition doesn 't preclude women from doing things like serving as ushers, um, serving on the security team, participating in the worship service in various ways, including reading scripture, praying, singing, giving testimony, all things that are appropriate for all believers with the right gifts and maturity. Those are not strictly elder functions. And so... Um, the prohibition doesn 't prohibit women from exercising leadership in, in various ministry capacities, administrative functions in the church from exercising authority in the in the business world, the government the community, and, and so forth. so again, our understanding is that paul is is specifically prohibiting um, women from performing the functions of the elders, in particular the authoritative teaching ministry of the church and so um, the, I should also say this prohibition doesn't preclude men from learning from women, from reading books written by women, from singing hymns and songs written by women, which we do every Sunday for the most part. Um, so there's a, there's a lot more that could be said, but these three key passages, which we started last time, finished today, um, they are challenging to interpret. I've tried to just give you you know like skim the surface on these things um, they're challenging to interpret they're often made to say more than they actually do and and that leads to restricting women from using their god-given gifts and abilities to to bless and edify the church and so we, we don't we need to be careful about that error of of saying more than it says or or saying more in um Putting in place restrictions that go beyond what it says, just so we can play it safe. Um, so that's it for the passages. I'm going to have Craig's going to come and and do some uh, summary here, and then and then a Q&A. Have
1: you
2: always wondered how you put this thing on? Sure, that's what everyone's been wondering. Our heads are different sizes, in case you haven't noticed too. Um, so, but not in a bad way. All right. Different gifts, different. Okay. All right. Moving on. ha <laughs> oh, All right. Black screen. I'm here to sum it up. Um, first of all, hats off to. uh Oh, Ryan, and I broke it. Oh, thanks. Um, First of all, thank you for coming out and listening to all this material. Um, As we've said, it is just skimming the surface of these issues, like so much more could be said and there's opportunity for that uh, as time goes on. Um, But thank you for investing in such an important topic and so we we really appreciate that. Um, The other thing I'd like to say is that we are truly sorry that this is difficult for some of you. We know that for some of you, ever since we brought this up, you've felt angst over it. You've been wrestling with it. It's causing uh, deep questions and concerns. Um, We as elders know that, and um, we're sorry for the pain that causes. And the only reason we are doing this is because we're convinced it is biblical and will be good for us. If we weren't convinced of that, we wouldn't be doing it. Um, Uh, Second, we want to be very clear about what we're saying and not saying. Um, I think it's really important to hear this. We are not proposing that we start something and then see where it goes. We are proposing that we change something and we're spelling out what that change is. I was recently listening to a talk from... um, a church leader, a pastor, and he was telling his church about changes they were going to be making about a particular topic. And uh, I listened to the whole one-hour talk, and um, as I did, it gave me great sympathy for where you're sitting. Because in listening to it, many of the things sounded similar to what we're saying. They had listened to people's hurts and realized that many of the People in the church had been hurt by various emphases in the church. They were going to be making changes about that. They had gone back and looked at Scripture and seen that Scripture didn't say what they initially thought it said. Sounds a lot like a lot of the things that we're saying. But what wasn't said was the clear biblical guardrails of where this is going and not going. And I hope you can hear us that this is something very different in what we're seeking to do, because we do see as we just heard in 1 Timothy 2, I know it's still probably settling in, but we do very clearly see that the elders are responsible for the teaching and overseeing of the doctrine of the church. The authoritative teaching is something elders do, and that's something that's not changing and something that only men can aspire to be elders. Um, so there's a clear guardrail that way. Um, We could have implemented many of these things already. You may have noticed we did implement a few things. We've had women saying, please be seated in the worship service. We've had women um, greeting. Um, We've had women doing announcements before the call to worship. Um, But we didn't want to go further than that without telling you first up front what we're doing. So you wouldn't be sitting there thinking, What kind of slope are we on? What's going on? Um, So please hear this as the forthrightness of seeking to lay out changes we are saying we think are biblical. So you have it printed there on your sheet, um, and I'll just say them one more time for the sake of clarity. These are the things that we will continue to do, uh, as we always have. The elders will oversee the worship service, They will call the church to worship. They will preach the word. Uh, You could have men who are training to be elders who may do that from time to time. Also administer the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then closing the service typically with a benediction. Um, So we're saying those things are staying the same. We see those in the way we do church here as elder responsibilities. But we are also saying... um, that we are convinced that it's biblical for women to participate in the following things uh, welcome and announcements, uh, reading scripture, praying, leading singing distributing the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, if we uh, reinstitute that, serving as usher, greeter, security, and giving testimony, which sometimes we do during discipleship hour, sometimes it's during the worship service, at a baptism, missions, ministry report, those types of things. So, um, We have been saying that we're considering these things, and, and that may make some confusion of how you hear the word consider. We're convinced that all these things are biblical and allowable for women to do, even should be encouraged. When we say that we're considering these things, we're we're talking about um, what lines we will draw here and how those things are practiced at GBC. There's all kinds of ways those things could be practiced, um, and we're still thinking through some of those ways, but but this list are the things that we are um, clear about. Um, I thought it might be helpful just now that you've heard three weeks of kind of what we're thinking as we look at those passages and what we're proposing, um, just to circle back to something that we said at the very beginning, which was that part of the double-check of our process as we wrestled through this was then to reach out to other conservative, complementarian churches and see what they believed and what they practiced to see if we're the only people thinking this, because that would seriously give us pause. Uh, and, and as we said before, we found that there are many churches from multiple backgrounds that we respect who do this. Um, there, are, and there are nine Marx churches, Capitol Hill Baptist in D.C. There are Southern Baptist churches, like Clifton Baptist Church, where Tom Schreiner uh, is an elder. Acts 29 churches, like the Village Church, where Jen Wilkins serves in her teaching ministry among women. And then also um, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. um, This is the conservative Presbyterian denomination, not the PCUSA. That's ordaining women elders and beyond. Um, They actually split over things related to this. And one thing that we've come across since, um, since teaching this that I just think is helpful Is uh, we recently found a statement from 1992 by James Montgomery Boyce. You may have read his commentaries or heard his preaching uh, at 10th Presbyterian Church. Uh, In 1992, they made a statement about their church's stance on this issue, and it's exactly what we're saying. And that was over 30 years ago. And the PCA as a whole, and that church in particular, is not wavering on the complementarian issue. And so, uh, just so you can see that. There are reasons to think that just because you'd make these changes doesn't mean it needs to keep going. Um, We've also interacted with Matt Layton, our missionary who's... um doctor professor uh, at IBSTI. Uh, He's gone over our research. He agrees with it. Some of you have asked about, is this only something that happens in the U.S.? Um, That's a concern that's there. And one of the things that's helpful to know is this actually fits with their practice in Spain uh, and is much more in accord with what the church is doing there. We're not saying that this proves anything. Like that list of churches, you could find a list to say all kinds of things, right? But Pastorally, I just think it can help, help you to know that we're not alone. There are many churches that have seen things this way and remained in this stream of complementarian practice throughout decades and, and beyond, really. So that's just uh, summarizing what we're saying. And then I just want to talk about where do we go from here. Um, and then we're going to shift to Q&A very soon. I know you've all been listening to a, a lot. Um, we've spent three weeks three hours summarizing our our views, a lot more can be said. Now what we want to do is give you time to think about it, (laughs) to just absorb what you've heard, uh, to pray about it. After the first of the year, we plan to communicate with the church again about all of this before we begin implementing any changes. And so there's time to just absorb it. You'll hear from us again uh, before we move forward with anything. In the meantime, what can we all be doing? Um, Praying, considering what you've heard. I'd encourage you probably, especially if you're wrestling with it, to to re-watch these videos. I mean, talk about drinking from a fire hose, and this is just a summary (laughs) of of so much more. And so just the fact of taking it all in at at 4.30 to 5.30, and then it's getting dark, uh, is just a a creaturely feat in and of itself. And so... um, We also have a document with our notes on these three passages. If you'd like to see more exegetical work, it's about 60 pages, and we can send that along to you. We do have other resources of churches making similar arguments, um, if that's helpful to you. If you're struggling or if you have questions, we ask that you reach out to us and talk to us as elders. We're happy to meet with you. We're happy to talk this through. Um, some questions have come up about how do we speak with each other about this? Uh, how do we talk about this as a church, especially in these upcoming months? Well, we want to stay away from things that encourage divisiveness or disunity. That scripture calls us to that, right? But please don't hear that as a gag order. That's that's not what it is at all. Really, all it's asking is that you consider your heart in these conversations, you consider the heart of the person you're talking to, and you consider the hearts of the elders as you're having those conversations. And I'd really encourage you, if you're talking with someone who's struggling with this, or if you yourself are struggling with this, give thought to what is best and most loving for them. Um, It could be good for the person to listen again to the material for the person to pray regularly, that God would help them understand these issues involved, to allow time, encourage them to write down their questions because writing things down can help bring clarity and then make sure that that gets sent along to the elders so we can seek to address that. But here's the most important thing. If I were Ryan, I would do a black screen, so you all look at me. But So imagine a black screen. The most important thing we can say to you is if you're struggling with this, please talk to an elder about this. So you may be tempted to think, oh, they're so busy, I don't want to bother them. Yes, we all have lots going on, but this is our top priority, and we would love nothing more than to do this. But part of the reason that this is so important that we may, um, that we may not think of is at the end of the day, this is an elder-led church, This isn't a, um, it is a complementarian church, sorry. It's not a congregational church, another C word there. It's not a Presbyterian church in how it's set up. And so what this means is we're not going to be having a vote about this issue. What it really boils down to at the end of the day is if you trust that what the elders are saying is in accord with Scripture, and if you trust our character and process enough, that you can follow our leadership in these changes. Um, That's something that you'll have to think about before the Lord. That's why we think that talking to us is so important, so we can hear your questions and your heart, and so you can hear what we think about that in ways that we can't do when we're just standing up here. these are decisions that ultimately you have to make, and we just want to make sure you have all the information you need, especially in speaking to us as you consider these things. So that's why we say that, um, and we enjoy talking to you as well. So with that said, I'd like to invite my fellow elders up to these chairs, and um, We wanted to give you an opportunity to ask questions and to hear from the five of us. Now I know we've been—it's been an hour—and so our thought is to give um, 15 minutes to this, and then you could stick around um, for more if and talk to us individually if you'd like. If you need to go, uh, if it—if you don't care to hear this or it would be hard to hear this, you are free to leave, and there is no judgment in that. There. There are all kinds of stories about what can happen during Q&A things at churches, Um, and so we don't want to subject anyone to anything. Um, Also, we've been saying each week that how we go about thinking about these things, how we go about considering it, is very important, um, and that we love each other well in it. And so what that means when we come to Q&A, is just we ask that as you ask questions of us that you would think about if it's helpful to the whole church. Um, We're eager to hear from you, but that the things you ask would be something you think is helpful for everyone to hear and consider in asking it. Um, and then just as a logistics thing, we've got microphones up here so you can hear us, but then uh, we have Piper has a microphone that she will bring to you. It's not to intimidate you. It's so we can all hear and can all respond. And so we just ask that if you have a question, um, slip up your hand. She'll bring the mic to you, and we'll address it as we're able. I know it can be uh, awkward to just wait for the first question, so I'm going to ask the first question. Um, Mark, what are your thoughts about this as one of the founding elders of the church who has been here since the start? You can start us off with
3: that. How long do I have? <laughs> you do what you need to do. <laughs> 30, 30 years, maybe? No. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks. I, I actually asked the elders, we were meeting this week, and I said, you know, I think it might be helpful to give some context to what you've been hearing uh, for the past, uh, past few weeks. And as one of the one of the founding pastors uh, here. Uh, we've, we've gone through a lot as a church. Some of you have been part of that. Some of you have been part of the previous church that uh, Grace Bible Church uh, came out of. But I think it might be helpful. So it's going to take a couple minutes, and then we'll you know, go for the questions and uh, um, go from there. So first of all, the elders the elders over, over the years, and especially when the church first started, uh, there was a very strong, a very strong conviction regarding the Word of God. Uh, we came out of a, we came out of a really awful church uh, culture previous to Grace Bible Church, and that culture was uh, abusive leadership, and that resulted in in a church that basically disintegrated. Um, so out of that, one of the things that, so I'm going to go through a list of things very quickly that that have changed over the years. And it had been driven by biblical convictions, not by culture, either internal church cultures or external to the church. But these are things that the elders, from their heart, believed God's word to speak to. So the first was a plurality of elders. That was, that was huge for us. We came from a church that spoke about the plurality of elders, but there was a senior pastor. Uh, we said, no, that's that's not what the Bible teaches. There's not a senior. There's only one senior pastor, and that's Jesus but there is a plurality of elders. So you have five pastors up here, um, and not one of us, though we have two that are very outspoken down here. Uh, um, but you have five pastors here, and they have equal authority uh, here in the church with different different skills, different gifts. So that was, that was huge for us as a church when we first started. Um, there was things after that in terms of how the church, how we were going to do what we would do in our worship services. Uh, We we strongly believe the Bible. We were convinced the Bible said that you have the Lord's Supper regularly. So we decided we're going to do it regularly. We had people who were very uh, who were opposed to that. They thought you're going to it's going to be repetitive. It's uh, people are going to lose interest in it. We said no. We think the Bible. We believe the Bible to speak to that. So we had regular weekly uh, Lord's Supper. and then we had other things that came up. Uh, are we going to have wine versus grape juice? We made a change, and we went with both. And uh, there was people who were upset about that uh, that particular change. Uh, we had uh, communion. You may not realize this, but we had communion only in the evening services. And in the morning services, we had it once a month. And uh, we came to the conviction, again, based on God's word, that not everybody was participating in the Lord's Supper. And so we made a decision to move the Lord's Supper to the morning service. Again, there was people who didn't, uh, didn't agree with that, but it was our conviction that that's what the Bible uh, spoke to regarding the Lord's Supper. Uh, we had other issues of uh, in terms of worship. Uh, uh, some of you might remember a time when we had just a piano and an organ. And we decided, based on conviction, based on what we believe the, the Bible was saying, that we could have more instruments being utilized in our worship service. That did not go over well with many families, and uh, but we felt we were convinced that that the expression of a variety of instruments was more in line with God's heart regarding corporate corporate worship. That also pertained to contemporary music uh, versus traditional music. There was a time when we just sang traditional music, and we moved to doing to do corporate. Uh, contemporary some of the things that are, were contemporary then are now traditional i think it uh, it's changed uh, after 30 years uh, we sang one of those one of those uh, hymns uh, can, uh, songs this morning uh, in christ uh, in christ alone uh, physical expression in worship so there's things over over the course uh, really what i'm trying to say is over the course of the life of the church there have been things that the elders have been convinced of from the scriptures that that drove our Practice as a church. Now there was there's two cases where we were in error, and two years ago we admitted to one of those errors, and that had to do with um, hyperheadship, so uh, leadership that was unbiblical in in marriages that uh, resulted in very uh, in tragic situations within our own church, and uh, we brought that to you, asked for your forgiveness. We erred in the, in that regard. Um, the second is what we're bringing to you now. And that is we believe we've erred in the past regarding the role of brothers and sisters in corporate worship. And we're trying to make that right. We're trying to align with what the Scripture say. So some context about the church and uh, uh, what we've gone through over the years. And uh, uh, we trust and hope and pray that uh, as we move forward uh, that you'll be uh, uh, following our lead in that. So, okay, that's all I have to say. Okay. Thanks, Mark.
2: Does anyone have a question they'd like to ask? Just slip up your hand. Umberto, Piper's right there. Thanks.
1: Uh, thanks. Uh, so, one thing that y'all have made, um, I think, clear is um, that you view this as a should, not just, or sorry, um, women's involvement in the church should be a should, not just a can or a may. <clears throat> um, Excuse me. Uh, and then I, excuse uh, me, uh, Craig. You you mentioned <clears throat> even earlier regarding uh, implementing this. So I, I was curious whether there was a plan to implement uh, women becoming more involved, or whether it might just be more organic, like um, women volunteering for things, or and whether um, if there is a plan, how that might look like. Well, I think there's two parts to that question, but one part is we had questions about, we used the word ought, and um, we got a couple of questions about that. So we're not saying everyone needs to feel they have to do this. We want people to follow their own conscience, and people need the gifting and the character, and they need to be asked by the elders to, to serve in these ways. So um, I don't want, we don't want anyone to feel like they have to do what we're talking about I think that's part of your question. I know know that was, uh, we received that from the online questionnaire, um, that sort of question. As far as a plan, um, we're going to have everybody think and pray and rest through Thanksgiving and Christmas season and give this plenty of time. We've had a couple years. We feel like today is your first day to have all all the information. So um, we mentioned this back in September. So there'll be like a minimum of four months to be talking about this and, um, we're always available to, to speak about it more. But um, we're going to have to talk more about how do we implement. We're saying these things are permissible, but how do we implement? Um, so some of it's going to based on the culture of the church, and some of it's going to be uh, wisdom calls that, that we have to make.
2: Anyone else? Marsha? Mike is coming it's not
1: indicated here but
2: I wasn't exactly sure
0: whether or not you're saying that women can teach during the discipleship hour to men and women
2: it's a good question
1: I'll give that one a shot (laughs) Um so I'm just going to give you some thoughts. Um we've been focusing on the worship service, so we haven't discussed outside of the worship service anywhere near the degree that we've been discussing, studying and praying the worship service. But um the elders will continue to teach uh during the discipleship hour. The elders are the authoritative teachers of the church. It's extremely important so that the doctrine stays correct and we're accountable to God for what what gets taught. Um, We have had in the past ministries come in from outside the church, come in and share and uh, use some scripture when they've done it. We've had members of the church share about ministries using scripture. We've had, uh, we could have a missionary's wife sharing, and we're probably not going to say you can't mention scripture. Um, So um, uh, we're not saying absolutely Like, not a peep about the Bible, but uh, we really haven't talked about it. Um, We've just really been focused on the worship service. Um, So we we don't want to mislead you that um, um, I think the best takeaway is that hasn't been our focus.
3: This is more a general question for any of the elders that want to answer, but I am just curious. I know this has been a several years-long process of just the research and the prayer, and um, you all have had several years to digest it. Um, would any of you be willing to share your personal experience of this realization, you know, when when this was revealed to you through Scripture, and you were like, wow, this is something that we need to talk about, and then maybe how that went as you began to digest it over the years and became more settled with it? I'm just curious.
2: That's a great question.
1: Let me just start with a little brief thing on the negative aspect of that. I can remember uh, many years ago being at a church I really respect, a complementarian church. And they had a gal come up and read scripture. My reaction was, whoa. Like, so I mean, we know what has to be unlearned from from the learning and the, and the traditions. I remember the first time I heard a female here say, please be seated or <laughs> sing this song in all the years being here, never heard that female voice come through these speakers. And and it was, it like physically jarred me. So so we know, um, and, and I remember a guy telling me, uh, my wife leads all the time. Yeah, I, I have a responsibility before God as in headship, but she leads all kinds of things. We'd be a disaster. And I'm like, if she leads, you're not the head. Like, you know, no, he is the head, but she can lead lots of things. So that's the negative aspect of this process. That you know, we know how this feels. <laughs> gutturally, uh, it's not easy.
4: Okay. Um, I've always been complementarian for a long time, but I just didn't know it. I found out when I met Robin. I remember I was. We were going to have a little Bible study. We I think we were just dating. And and I began to pontificate. And she said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this a two-way thing or not? And uh, it was a two-way thing after that. <laughs> the, the church we were a part of back then had these tendencies of strong, strong headship. And we didn't really realize it. Um, long story short, coming here... Uh, there were strong tendencies towards headship as well. So it's not just something that was true of our church, Grace Bible Church. Um, I was first tipped off to uh, a compliment, to actually identify. Uh, someone pointed out to me, uh, especially in the Genesis account, um, when, when the Lord God said, let us create man in our image. Uh, let us create them in our Im- them in our image um male and female he created them that the equality there between male and female I think that's the starting point that influences everything else that the apostles and everything else the scripture teaches it carries forward Jesus refers to creation in answering the Pharisees at one point about um, how that divorce was given as a um, an article for the hardness of people's hearts, Israelites' hearts. and um, But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. He goes back to creation because that goes over everything. That tells us that men and women are equal, that men are to treat their wives in a certain way, and wives are to treat their men in a certain way. And it's it's everything that Paul talks about, everything that we heard tonight uh, based on grace, based on an equal standing before God in grace, um, and all of these th- these three texts that we've been looking at—that's the—that's the overarching and underlying principle of gentleness, submissiveness. And Paul, even the first thing he says in Ephesians chapter five is submit to one another in the fear of God. Before he goes on to talk about submissiveness, you know, the relationship of Christ and the church reflected in the marriage relationship. So these were stepping stones for me. And then when they asked me to consider being an elder again, they hit me with the full fire hose. And I had to think about these things, and uh, it it just lined up, it clicked for me. Um, Everything that we've been hearing these past three hours uh, just kind of cemented it all and and, uh, is very clear. But I've had about a year and a half or two to think about it. So that's my story. That's my history.
0: I could add, just, it's kind of hard, I think. I was trying to think, how would I boil it down? But two things come to mind. Um, Mark mentioned, you know, several years ago, we began relooking at um, just what we understood about marriage, the marriage relationship, and seeing how some distorted understandings of a husband and wife relationship um, was really destructive, and then, you know, through that, realizing that it, it, this wasn't just a marriage question. It was a more foundational question of uh, men and women and how God views men and women and how men and women should relate to each other. And things like uh, Hank was bringing out Genesis 1, man, um, man and woman created in the image of God, given uh, dominion over the earth, just really kind of started a journey of um trying to look at what the Bible says about men and women with fresh eyes and then um a second thing would be um you uh kind of backing up from the like the three passages we've just looked at last time and this time, um kind of stepping away from those passages and just looking more generally at the sweep of scripture, what do we see women doing in in the history of redemption and in the life of the church and just you know, the narratives, the gospels, the acts uh acts of the apostles, those kinds of things. Just set aside the question for the moment of what are the what are these three disputed passages say and just Looking at the many different ways women have been um, active in the life of the church, right in Scripture, was was kind of eye opening for me, and then gave some context, I think, for the the more the disputed passages that we've been talking about.
2: We probably have time for one more. I mean, we're already. give some examples of how
0: women in the church or outside of the church have significantly impacted um, your faith.
3: So what was the question, uh, can we think of any one, any significant women who have impacted us? Was that the question? Oh, well, <laughs> I know of one, and uh yeah thirty five years of being married to her has significantly impacted uh my faith and uh, as partners in uh and laborers in in, uh, in the church and ministry and uh so yeah, I would say I think probably everybody up here would probably nod their heads and say the same same thing we wouldn't be who we are without our without our wives and um yeah, and they've had to go through. A lot to see the changes that, that we've gone through. We've many of us grew up as Christians in a very hyper headship environment, and they were they received, you know, they received some of that, or a lot of that. And so changes in there. So um, and of course that's affected where we are today in terms of brother sister relationships within the church itself. You want to go first.
1: Just quickly, I would say one way all of our wives have really glorified God is in their patience with us, with this years-long journey to finally get to this place um, of um, a Christ-like headship.
4: I think my wife had to be extra patient, actually. Um, she had a special measure of patience. Uh, I think outside of our wives, I think of, right away, I don't know, I thought of Elizabeth Elliot, um, my wife had been influenced by her teaching, and and she would have her uh, playing on a tape or something for, you know, this has been like quite a while ago now, and I would listen. it would I said, there's nothing wrong with what she's saying. It's authoritative, but she's she was such a, a godly woman, and just the way she carried herself, uh, a married woman, um, I thought, you know, <laughs> why couldn't someone like that speak in our church and I actually thought well that wouldn't happen Um, but I thought that just because she was a woman but there's nothing wrong with what she was teaching and sharing from scripture about her life experience as a missionary and what they went through Um, but she had quite an impact on on Robin and I I thought that might be a good example
1: I could uh, go ahead just there's Multiple women that we've walked closely with that have been very mistreated, mm. and and we think the male overly male-heavy male leadership is right, overly male-heavy contributed to some of that in the marriages. But but to see their faith through that, mm. with great mistreatment, great loss, great judgment against them, and um, if you got the Holy Spirit in you, you're going to remain. Uh, faithful, and and they did.
0: I could name one person I've never met, Lady Jane Gray, martyr in the 16th century, um, amazing teenage girl who uh, was willing to go to death for um, uh, her commitment to the gospel. Um, And then two people I I do know, um, I mean, besides Stephanie, um, my mother, uh, big influence on me. And then um, even there's somebody in our own congregation, Jenny Haggerty, is just, I am amazed at this woman. 96 years old, I think, faithful follower of Christ for many years. I come away from every conversation uh, with her just thinking, I hope I can be like her when I grow up. There's
1: many women as we look around here that have really proved themselves, but it's so awkward to <laughs> name names. Of people here.
2: Yeah, um, I, I don't know how to answer the question without just bawling, so I'll just uh, <laughs> save that. But um, we've, we've mentioned our wives. I think of my mother-in-law's faith, my mom's faith, and one of the things that's been so beautiful on this journey of all of us as elders is realizing we can make and should make intentional effort to reach out to women to see what they see from Scripture as we prepare to teach, and so that's something that we've kind of learned years back, I think, and have been implementing ever since, and the richness of insights that women in this church make um, when I ask them about sermon prep, sermon feedback, issues on passages, um, is just amazing, and the preaching and teaching ministry that you hear every Sunday is very shaped by women's voices, and that's that's a beautiful change that's happened Um not to mention just absolute rock star commentaries that are out there by women like Karen Jobes and others who just completely know their stuff and um, just can run circles around us theologically on things too. So hats off to them as well. But I could go on and on, but um, I'll try and refrain.
4: Just a quick comment. I I would have to say that, in general, the women at our church, at Grace Bible Church, exemplify the things that, that we've been talking about gentleness and submissiveness in a good, godly, biblical way. Um, I don't think I've ever had a lady get on me or be mean or nasty to me or be snide. Or It's just a general, and it's true of the whole congregation, men and women, but I think it's commendable for the ladies that, uh, that that's how I see our congregation.
2: Well, we said 15 minutes. Like, So the, the one untruth of hopefully these last three hours was that the Q&A will be 15 minutes. We The rest uh, is true, and we stand by it. Um, for the sake of time, I think we need to wrap it up. But hopefully you can see. We would love to talk to any of you about this. Um, there's still ways to reach out and email us. We've said all those logistic things. You've already heard it. And so um feels like we should close in prayer. Yeah, Mark. Yeah. So let's pray.
3: All things, you know all hearts, you know our struggles, you know our sin, but we thank you for a Savior whose love goes beyond, whose mercy is greater, more glorious, more beautiful. And so we thank you for Jesus, we thank you for our salvation, we thank you that you have brought us together as a church and we ask father for your wisdom and your your patience and father we thank we ask that you would uh help us to maintain in the midst of uh the uh uh discussions we have had over the past month that uh, our unity would be maintained and that the, the the glory of the gospel would go forth in our lives and from us as a church and so thank you father be with us this week we pray in Jesus name amen